and thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes, a primer of sorts for 500 years of feminist writings, in which I introduce listeners to feminist texts through excerpts and providing some context for the writers and the themes that are explored. This bonus content follows episode two, Christine de Pazan's The Book of the City of Ladies, written in 1405 in defense of women. The whole book has a surreal, dreamlike quality. It is a story within a vision within a story. Its very foundation is metaphor, as the city is built from the notable women of antiquity that de Pizan explores through the three ladies that visit Christine in a vision. Reason, Rectitude, and Justice. I am going to read She Speaks of Griselda, the Marquise of Saluce, a woman strong in virtue. I chose this because it illustrates the shift in understanding of narrative between de Pizan's time and our own. I'm also fascinated by folk tales and how they change over time. Today we hear a story of domestic abuse through gaslighting, but in the Middle Ages they would have heard a story of a virtuous woman who could withstand any amount of emotional pain. The story is from part two, and of the three ladies it is Rectitude who tells it. Christine has asked Rectitude how so many educated and learned men could be wrong about the inconstancy of women. Rectitude counters their claim with numerous stories of women whose constancy is unwavering and deeply disturbing. As Marilyn Desmond stated in our conversation about the book, we need to look at it in the context it was written, and virtue was an important directive in the Middle Ages, perhaps like self-actualization is today. By the time Christine de Pizan retells the Griselda story, it is already a well-known folktale throughout Europe and has been included in collections by Boccaccio, Chaucer, and Petrarch. De Pizan's version emphasizes the gaslighting and the abuse by Griselda's husband, but throughout Europe, Griselda is a symbol of patience and constancy. From The Book of the City of Ladies by Christine de Pizan About Griselda, the Marchioness of Saluzzo, a woman of unfailing virtue. The story goes that there was once a Marquis of Saluzzo, called Gualtieri, who was unmarried. He was a handsome and very worthy man, though rather eccentric in his ways. His barons kept advising and urging him to marry in order to have heirs. Having held out for a long time against doing as they recommended, he eventually agreed to take a wife, on condition that they promised to accept whichever woman he chose to marry. His barons consented to this and swore an oath on it. From time to time, this marquis used to go off hunting animals and birds. In the countryside near his castle lay a small village where, amongst all the impoverished peasants living there, dwelt a poor, sick old man, whose name was Giannocolo. This fine man, who had been a good and honest person all his life, had a daughter by the name of Griselda, who was eighteen years of age. She served her father with great diligence and earned a living for the two of them by spinning wool. The Marquis, who usually passed by their house, had often noticed the girl's sober behavior and virtuous habits. Moreover, she was very lovely in her appearance, all of which disposed him well towards her. After Gualtieri had promised his barons that he would definitely take a wife, he went to tell them to gather together on a certain day for his wedding, giving the order that all the ladies should also be present. He had great preparations made, and, on the appointed day, when his knights and ladies were assembled before him, 
he had them all ride out on horseback to accompany him as he went to fetch his bride. He then headed straight for Giannocolo's house, where he came across Griselda. She was carrying a pitcher of water on her head, for she had just come back from the well. He asked her where Giancolo was, whereupon she knelt down in front of him and told him that her father was inside. Go and bring him to me, he ordered her. When the good man emerged from the house, the Marquis informed him that he was there to take his daughter in marriage. Giancolo replied that he was happy for the Marquis to do as he wished. The ladies went into the little house to dress the bride and deck her out in the richest finery, as befitted the rank of a marquis. Draping her in the robes and jewels that Gualtieri had prepared for her. He then led her away to be married in his palace. To cut a long story short, this lady behaved with such courtesy towards everyone, both the nobles of all ranks and the common people, that they loved her with great affection. She treated each one of them on exactly the right level and was thus able to please them all. As was her duty, she served her husband well and loved him dearly. That year, the Marchioness gave birth to a daughter, an event which was received with great joy. However, when the child was old enough to be weaned, the Marquis decided to test Griselda's constancy and patience. He therefore told her that, since the barons were unhappy for a child of her base lineage to reign over them, this meant the girl would have to be put to death. Hearing these words, which would strike grief into the heart of any mother, Griselda replied that the child was his daughter and that he should do with her as he pleased. He had the child placed into the care of one of his squires, whilst he maintained his pretense that the man had come to take her away to be killed. In fact, she was taken in secret to Bologna, the Marquis's sister, who looked after the child and bought her up. Though Griselda was convinced that her daughter had been killed, she gave no sign or hint that she was distressed. Another year later, the Marchioness became pregnant again and had a beautiful son whose birth was greeted with great rejoicing. Yet the Marquis wanted to test Griselda a second time, so he told her that this child too would have to be put to death to appease his barons and his men. The lady answered that, if it was not enough that the boy should die, she too would be prepared to lay down her life, if that was what he wanted. Griselda gave up her son to the same squire, just as she had done with her daughter, without revealing the least trace of sorrow. Neither did she say anything to the squire himself, other than begging him to make sure that he buried the child properly after having killed him so that the wild beasts and birds could not devour his tender flesh. Throughout all this terrible suffering, Griselda's facial expression remained unchanged. Unfortunately, the Marquis didn't stop there, but wanted to put her even further to the test. They had been together twelve years, during which time the honourable lady had conducted herself so well that this should have been ample proof of her constancy. However, one day the Marquis called her to his chamber, and informed her that he was having trouble with his men and his subjects who were extremely unhappy at having the daughter of Giannocolo as their sovereign lady, and were thus threatening to overthrow him because of her. In order to pacify them, she would have to be sent back to her father in the same state as she had been when she left. He would then take a second wife of nobler birth. Hearing these words, which must have caused her great anguish, Griselda replied, my lord, I have long been haunted by the thought that it is impossible to reconcile your nobility and splendor with my poverty. Neither have I ever felt myself to be worthy of being your mistress, let alone your wife. I am ready to return right now to my father's house, where I shall live out my old age. 
As for the dowry which you have ordered me to take back with me, I am as aware as you are that when you came to fetch me outside my father's house, you had me completely undressed and put into the robes which I wore to go away with you. Apart from that, all I had for a dowry were my loyalty, honour, love, respect, and poverty. It's therefore only fitting that I give you back the goods you gave me, so here is the dress which I am now taking off, and here is the ring with which you married me. I also leave you with all the other jewels, rings, clothes, and ornaments, which I wore to make myself beautiful in the bridal chamber. Naked I was when I left my father's house, and naked I shall be when I return. It's just that it seems improper to me that this womb, which once bore your two children, should be seen to be naked in public, so if you have no objection, I beg you to compensate me for the virginity which I bought into this palace, which I cannot take back with me, by allowing me just one slip to cover up the womb of the former marchioness, your wife. The Marquis could barely contain his tears of compassion, but he nonetheless managed to control his emotions, and, as he left the room, he ordered her to be given a single undergarment. In the presence of all the knights and ladies, Griselda had to take off her clothes and shoes and remove all her jewelry, until she was left with just the slip-on. Since word had soon spread that the Marquis wanted to send his wife away, every man and woman came running to the palace, sickened with grief at this news. Griselda, bareheaded, barefoot, and naked, except for her slip, was put onto a horse. Accompanied by the barons, knights, and ladies, all of whom were weeping and cursing the Marquis as they lamented the loss of his wonderful wife. Griselda still didn't shed a single tear. She was taken to her father's house, where the old man had never once doubted that the day would come when his lord would tire of having made such a poor marriage. Hearing all the noise, he came out to greet his daughter, bringing her the ragged old dress that he had kept for her all that time, which he helped her put on without showing the least sign of unhappiness. So it was that Griselda went back to living with her father in great poverty and loneliness, serving him as she used to, and never once betraying a hint of sorrow or regret. Indeed, she used to console her father in his distress at seeing his daughter fall from such high distinction into such desperate wretchedness. When the Marquis felt that he had tested his loyal wife long enough, he sent word to his sister that she should make her way to his palace with a noble company of lords and ladies, bringing with her the two children, but taking care not to let anyone know that they were his. He informed his barons and subjects that he wished to remarry, taking as a wife a young girl of noble birth whose guardian was his sister. On the day when his sister was due to arrive, he assembled together in the palace a fine host of knights, ladies, and high-born people. A magnificent feast was also made ready. He then sent for Griselda, saying to her, Griselda, the girl that I am going to marry will be here tomorrow, and I am determined that my sister and all her noble company should be given a fine and fitting welcome. Since you know my ways and are familiar with all the rooms and chambers, I want you to be in charge of making the arrangements and to give all the instructions to the household. You are to make sure that each person is properly received according to their rank, especially my bride-to-be, and that everything is organized as it should be. Griselda replied that she would gladly do his bidding. The next day, the guests were greeted with ceremony on their arrival. Despite her ragged dress, Griselda wasn't put off from going up to the girl whom she thought was to be the new bride. With a smile on her face, she curtsied to her and uttered these humble words. My lady, you are most welcome. She greeted her son and the whole of the rest of the company in turn in a similarly gracious fashion. 
Though she was dressed like a pauper, it was obvious from the way she held herself that she was in fact a very honorable lady of great virtue. The newcomers were amazed that such fine speech and such a noble bearing should be cloaked in wretched garments like those she had on. Griselda had taken excellent care of the preparations and nothing was out of place. Yet she was so fascinated by the girl and boy she was unable to tear herself away from their side and kept gazing in deep admiration at their beauty. The Marquis had made everything ready as if he were really going to marry the girl. When it was time for the mass to begin, he called Griselda over to him and in front of everybody said, Griselda, what do you think of my new bride? Isn't she lovely and innocent? She replied with great dignity, Certainly, my lord, no lovelier or more innocent creature was ever seen. However, I would like to ask a favor of you, in all good faith. I beg you to spare her the torments and trials with which you have tested me for she is so young and delicately brought up that she would be unable to endure what your previous wife has done. On hearing Griselda's words, the Marquis realized just how steadfast, constant, and faithful she was, and was astounded by her virtue. He took pity on her for having had to bear the lengthy suffering that he had imposed on her when she had done nothing to deserve such treatment. In the presence of everyone, he spoke up, saying, Griselda, your trials are at an end, for your steadfastness and loyalty, your fidelity and affection, your obedience and humility towards me have all now been proven. I truly believe that there is no man on earth who ever found a greater love in marriage through putting his wife to all the tests that I have put you to. The Marquis then went up to her and hugged her tight. He covered her in kisses and declared, You alone are my wife, and I'll never want to take another. The girl whom you took for my bride is in fact our daughter, and this boy is your son. Let everyone here present know that what I have done has been to test my wife, not to criticize her. I didn't have the children killed after all, but ordered them to be brought up by my sister in Bologna, for here they are. The Marchioness fainted from happiness at hearing her lord's words. When she regained consciousness, she took her children in her arms and bathed them with tears of delight. Without a doubt, her heart was filled with gladness, and all those who were there wept with joy and compassion. Without a doubt, her heart was filled with gladness, and all those who were there wept with joy and compassion. Griselda was more highly exalted than ever before, and she was decked once again in the finest array. This was followed by tremendous rejoicing as the ladies' praises were sung to the skies. She and her husband lived together in peace and happiness for another twenty years. The Marquis, who had previously neglected her father, Giannicolo, invited him to court and treated him with great reverence. Their children both made excellent marriages. After the Marquis's death, his son succeeded him with the full support of the barons. I find the ending of the story unsatisfying. I do not believe Griselda finds marital bliss at the end of the story. If there was a chapter two, it would consist of increasingly sadistic testing that would not end until she left him or one of them died. Because that is what men like this do, and they do not change unless there is intervention. Up until very recently, it was religiously decreed and legally reinforced that wives were the property of men. It is still true in many parts of the world. The rights women have today in the West at least, are still relatively new and not yet hardwired in, which is why this story still resonates and doesn't feel so unfamiliar as to render itself obsolete. 
In the next episode, I am reading from Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft, written almost 400 years after the Book of the City of Ladies. It still grapples with the theme of virtue and the lack of education for women. It will be interesting to compare how virtue is defined between Wollstonecraft and de Pizan. Also, I couldn't resist recording one more short story from Christine de Pizan, The Blessed Virgin Martina, one of the weirdly surreal stories of the Christian martyrs. If you are interested in the macabre as a Saturday morning cartoon, this story is for you. From the Book of the City of Ladies by Christine de Pizan About the Blessed Virgin Martina We mustn't forget to mention the Blessed Virgin Martina, an extremely beautiful girl who was born of noble parents in Rome. The emperor wanted to make her marry him, but she replied, I am a Christian and have dedicated myself to the living God, who delights in chastity of body and purity of heart. I adore only him, and to his care alone do I commend myself. Outraged by these words, the emperor had Martina taken to a temple where he tried to force her to worship the idols. Falling on her knees and raising her eyes towards the heavens, she clasped her hands together as she offered up a prayer to God. Immediately the idols cracked and fell to the floor, the temple crumbled, and all the priests who served the pagan gods were killed. The devil, who was hidden in the chief idol, screamed out loud and confessed that Martina was indeed the servant of God. In order to avenge the loss of his idols, the tyrannical emperor had Martina endure a cruel martyrdom, but God appeared to her and comforted her. She prayed for those who were tormenting her and succeeded in converting them and many other people by her great virtue. When he saw this, the emperor became even more determined than before, and he submitted Martina to tortures that were twice as brutal. However, her persecutors cried out that they could see God and his saints standing in front of her. They therefore begged for mercy and converted. Whilst she was deep in prayer on their behalf, a light shone down upon them, and a voice from heaven was heard saying, for the sake of my beloved Martina, I shall spare you. Seeing that they had indeed gone over to the Christian faith, the prefect shouted at them, You fools, you have been tricked by the sorceress Martina. Their fearless reply came, It's you who have been deceived by the devil which possesses you, because you don't even recognize your own creator. In his rage, the emperor ordered them to be hanged and flayed alive. They all praised God as they received their martyrdom with joy. Next, the emperor had Martina stripped naked. She had such lily-white skin that the onlookers were all dazzled by her incredible beauty, and the emperor burnt with desire for her. He made threats to her, and as she refused to give in to him, he had her flesh cut to ribbons. From her wounds poured milk instead of blood, and a delicious scent emanated from her body. His anger grew even greater as he ordered her to be tied down flat on the floor between four posts, telling his torturers to smash her limbs. They beat her until they were completely exhausted, since God wanted to keep her alive a little longer in order for her to inspire everyone present to convert, including those who were persecuting her. Indeed, the torturers all cried out, Your Majesty, we can't continue with this because angels are beating us with chains. More men were brought in to punish Martina, but they promptly fell down dead, much to the astonishment of the emperor, who was at his wit's end. 
Nonetheless, he then had Martina spread-eagled on the ground and her body set on fire with burning oil. Never once did she leave off singing the glories of God as a delightful scent poured out of her mouth. When the torturers grew tired of inflicting these sufferings upon her, they threw her into a dark dungeon. The emperor's cousin, Elagabalus, who went to spy on Martina in her cell, saw her surrounded by angels and seated on a magnificent throne. The whole room itself was bathed in a brilliant light and was filled with the sound of melodious singing. Martina held up a golden tablet on which was written, O sweet Lord, Jesus Christ, praised be your works through the blessed saints. Elagabalus was so stunned by what he had seen that he went to tell the emperor, who retorted that his cousin had been taken in by Martina's sorcery. The next day, when the tyrant had her bought out again, everyone was amazed to see that her body was completely whole once more, and many of those present converted on the spot. The emperor took her back to the temple to make her sacrifice to the false gods. However, the devil, who was lurking in one of the idols, began to shriek, Alas, alas, I give in. The virgin ordered him to come out and reveal himself in all his foulness. Immediately there was a great roar of thunder and a bolt of lightning fell from the heavens, hurling the idol to the floor and burning the priest to death. The emperor then attacked Martina even more viciously than before, having her tied down and all her flesh torn off with iron pinchers. Seeing that she was not yet dead but still kept praising God, he had her thrown to wild beasts for them to devour. A huge lion which hadn't eaten for three days came over to her and bowed down before her. It then lay down beside her like a little dog and began to lick her wounds. She extolled the glory of God, saying, Thanks be to God, for in his goodness he has calmed the ferocity of these savage beasts. The tyrant was so maddened by the spectacle that he gave the command for the lion to be taken back to its pit. To his horror, the lion reared up in rage and leapt out, killing his cousin, Elagabalus. The emperor then ordered Martina to be burnt alive on an enormous fire. However, as she stood there joyfully in the midst of the flames, God sent a strong wind to spread the fire all around her, thus burning to death all those who were torturing her. The emperor commanded her beautiful long hair to be cut off, declaring that it was the source of all her magic powers. The virgin replied, Just as you are taking away the hair that the apostle calls the glory of a woman, so the Lord will take away your kingdom and will persecute you until you suffer a terrible death in torment. He then ordered her to be locked up in a temple, dedicated to his gods, and he himself secured the doors tight, marking them with his own seal. Three days later, he returned to find his gods lying smashed on the ground, whilst the virgin, still alive and well, was seen playing with the angels. When the emperor asked her what she had done to his gods, she answered, The glory of Jesus Christ has brought them down. At that point he gave the command that her throat should be cut. A voice was then heard saying, Martina, noble virgin, since you have fought the good fight in my name, come and join the saints in my kingdom and live in eternal joy with me. Thus the blessed Martina met her end. The Bishop of Rome arrived with all his clergy to take the body away and give it a splendid burial in the church. That very same day, the Emperor, whose name was Alexander, was afflicted with such searing pain that he bit himself all over in agony and devoured his own flesh. I am enamored with the imagery in this story. 
the wounds that pour milk, the sweet smells emanating from Martina's burnt flesh and from her mouth as she sings. It is like the love child of Dante and Fellini, and probably feels like that because of the enduring ideological virus that is Catholicism. God here, in this story, seems like a complete jerk. His behavior is not unlike Griselda's husband in the previous story, as he encourages and prolongs Martina's suffering. The story of Martina's ascension does not seem remotely divine. It seems more likely invented by repressed priests intent on making suffering aspirational. But I do think it is worth looking deeper into the metaphors. Martina calls out false idols despite being under intense duress and against the status quo. In this case, it is pagan gods, but we could liken her to a whistleblower or to an activist or to anyone dedicated to a cause. Perhaps because she holds true to her beliefs, her wounds are beautiful and do not seem to cause her any real pain. The question is, how do we determine what we are loyal to? Suffering as Martina suffers might be worthy to save the environment or protect the welfare of ourselves and communities, but that same character trait was also present in Griselda, whose suffering was determined by her husband, empowered, of course, by the patriarchal nature of her society. God here is testing Martina's loyalty as Griselda's husband tested hers. So is the virtue loyalty or willingness to suffer, and are they the same thing? After all, could we really know how loyal we are until we have been tested? Loyalty is considered a virtue, but is it really honorable to be loyal to the point of self-destruction? And is suffering really necessary? Is suffering part of the human condition? Catholicism would say yes, Buddhism would say we need to transcend it, capitalism would say have another drink, and socialism would say it's okay to suffer as long as we all suffer equally. Who does loyalty serve? The answer, of course, will be different every time we ask it. In the next episode, I am reading from Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft, written almost 400 years after the Book of the City of Ladies, but it still grapples with the same themes of virtue and the lack of education for women. I am planning on posting that episode next Thursday, October the 15th, but please be patient with me for the next few months as I work out the format. I am still experimenting. <laughs>